Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to katherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, I'm Catherine May, author of Wintering and Enchantment, and this is How We Live Now, a podcast that looks for pathways through this post-everything world. Each season, we ask a range of wise people a common question and roam around in the breadth and depth of our knowing. How We Live Now is made possible by my brilliant community at Substack. For newsletters, book clubs, live hangouts and ad-free episodes of this podcast, go to katherinemay.substack.com. Good morning. I don't know if it's morning for you. It's morning for me. It's quite early. I've come out to walk the dog before my day begins. There's always so much to do at the moment. It's the summer holiday. So my son is now at home. And uh, it's lovely. It's really nice, but it keeps me very busy. And personal space gets hard to come by. And listeners to my podcast will know that personal space is exactly what I need in life. Much of it. I have a few projects underway to address that right now, which I might tell you about soon. But for now, we've 
come to the end of this season of how we live now. And it's been great. <laughs> I've been able to talk to some truly wonderful people. And it's been really interesting to explore the idea of enchantment with people with loads of different perspectives on it, you know, and how we access it and what it is. For those of you that don't subscribe to my Substack, there was also a book club with Sharon Blackie who talks about enchantment too. It's worth uh, seeking that out. But yeah, it's, uh, it's been refreshing for me to explore the idea I've been working with in more depth. And that's the real privilege and pleasure of having a podcast, I think. It's also quite hard work making, you know, these, these kind of big projects that run alongside all the other things I do. And I have to say, I'm ready for a quiet summer. I'm just about to cross the road, it's getting noisy here. Yeah, I'm ready for a lovely quiet summer. I'm ready to let go of a few things for a while, to take a rest, to live without too much direction for a time. As I've got older, I've learned to appreciate summer much, much more. I always hated it when I was young. I hated the heat and I hated the lack of structure. I like to know what I'm doing, if that makes sense. <laughs> I like to have a purpose. But as I've got older, I've learned to stop fighting the heat quite so much. I'm still not ever gonna be someone that basks in the sun. But I can surrender to the warmth in a way that I wasn't able to when I was a little younger. And I've learned to really appreciate what summer brings. There is a sense of ease that comes over the world and kind of slackening of daily life. I guess people go off on holiday. Everything loosens up a little. And yeah, routine drops away. And now I'm a grown-up, I like that. I like that letting go. I like that disappearance of that hard beat of everyday life that comes to feel so oppressive at certain times. This week, my son finished school, primary school. So he went to this school for the last time. And it was an interesting few weeks. There was this sense that a process needed to happen. A process of letting go, of detachment. And everyone, by the end of term, was so exhausted 
And it meant there was a kind of readiness for it, which felt really helpful. I think schools know how to manage that really well now. They get the children really tired so that they can just gently let go. And so, a lovely long hot summer. And then the work begins again in September. (laughs) That's how it's going to be for me, anyway. So anyway, that's a long way of getting to introduce this final podcast guest of the season. A couple of weeks ago, I had the pleasure of talking to Daka Keltner, who is a psychologist who works on emotion. And in particular, his latest book is about awe, which it's hard to even conceive of as an emotion. It feels so other in lots of ways. It was really fascinating to try and unravel what that quality of awe is, what it feels like, what comprises awe, you know, what it's made up of. And also to talk about how awe has affected both of our lives. The very rare moments of big awe, which are as Dacker's work explores, life-changing generally and really connected to purpose and really identified with the core of us and core values, but also the practice of everyday awe. And I was really moved by the way Dacker had such an emotional connection with awe. He doesn't talk about it as a distanced academic which is I know a stereotype but he does talk about it in a very personal intimate way I think you're going to love it have a listen and I'll be back in a moment to say goodbye for a couple of months Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Thank you. 
Dakar, welcome to How We Live Now. I am delighted that you've been able to join us because um, what might be slightly invisible is that when I began the research for my recent book, Enchantment, I started with a lot of your research about awe. Mm. And that's before your book came out. So that's a delight. It was a delight to see the book come out at a similar time to mine as well. So we're connected in ways we didn't know. Well, I'm, I, I think uh, there's good reason because I think our world is uh, in need of thinking about awe and wonder and, and, and what it brings to us. So it's good to be with you, Catherine. Yeah, it's lovely to have you here. So I wanted to begin by asking you more broadly about the area you work in, because you work in, in the sort of study of emotion, yeah. which seems to me to be a really complex area to study because it, it's a study of quite fleeting states, isn't it? Yeah. Thanks for noting that. You know, yeah, there, you know, philosophers have been writing about emotions for millennia. You know, it is just part of the human experience and the mind. Mm. Uh, Darwin uh, wrote a famous book about emotion in 1872. And then, you know, scientists kind of shied away from studying these fleeting states, as you say, because they are complicated. They're ancient in our evolutionary history. They're metaphorical. Mm. They're poetic. Uh, so it's hard to study emotions, but we've made a lot of progress, including on all. And how do you catch people in the state of having an emotion? How do you bring those states about or do you not? <laughs> yeah, it's hard. You know, it's really hard because, well, you know, one is with laboratory techniques. So you can, you know, you just take the case of awe. You can have people watch really beautiful imagery on a screen, listen mm. to music, think about a past experience of awe. Our lab often tries to get outside of the lab and find people in nature. You know, we've studied people rafting and looking out at big views or standing near trees or out in the forest. So you really have to get creative to find these fleeting states to study them scientifically. It's not easy. That's so interesting. What what yeah. a strange job to do. Like these these areas <laughs> of study that people find themselves in are often never intended in the first place. And I, I love that yeah. you got there. <laughs> yeah. Who knows how? <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we could we could spend an hour talking about that. But yeah, let's talk about awe because yeah. it's a difficult one to pin down. I mean, it's a it's a word that we can use quite casually without fully understanding, yeah. I think, what it what it means. So first of all, how would you define it? What what is awe? Yeah, and thanks for complicating it. You know, it, <laughs> I love uh, doing that. No, rightfully so, because <laughs> you know, I've studied emotions for 30 years and we've, you know, had 15 years of research on awe, and I still feel like we haven't, I don't think we'll ever with scientific tools get to its essence. Mm. But I do think we've made a lot of progress. So, you know, we define awe as this emotion, and you rightly set this up, a sort of a fleeting state that you feel when you encounter vast mysteries, right? Things mm. that are beyond your ordinary consciousness or frame of reference. And then it unfolds in a particular way that we've sought to understand with science. But I think the, the simple way to think about how do I know I'm feeling awe is it's just some feeling you have when you encounter something vast and mysterious. Mm. And is or something that we might feel a few times in our life? Or is it something that can be distilled more often? Because I, I can kind of yeah. almost identify two types of awe in myself. One is a, a very vast kind of 
almost a shift that's happened just a couple of times that I can think of. Yeah. That's been really life-changing. What's an example, just out of curiosity? Ah, yeah. Okay, so the, the example that I always go back to is joining the march against the war on Iraq, yeah. which I think yeah. is 2001. Yeah. And I'd, I'd arrived late. Hmm. The march was already going on and I wasn't sure what to do or where to go. Yeah. And so I just joined the crowd. I just walked into the crowd. Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't enjoy crowds, but this crowd felt different to any other crowd I'd been in. And, and I was yeah. hit by this sense yeah of vastness i mean i mm. think some estimates say there are a million people there but That's it was incredible. bigger than that it was this sense of like common intent and yeah. and yeah. joyful intent you know yes people were angry about the war but they were also joyful to be together and everyone was singing and chanting mm. and and i was immediately welcomed into this this huge crowd and it felt like being hit in the chest with something physical. I, I felt like I could almost be knocked over by it. It was so big. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, mm. Yeah, and, and you know, Catherine, I love your observation, which is, and science hasn't gotten there yet, but I think it's intuitive, which is what's surprising, and I write about this in the book, and one of the most interesting findings, I think, in the 15 years of research we've done is actually people feel awe quite frequently, you know, two yeah. to three times a week, you know, more small ordinary experiences of awe that are very important to our health and well-being. And then at the same time, there are these momentous forms of awe, right? That mm. you probably have two to five times in a lifetime. It might be, I love your example of, you know, almost a transformative experience at a political march, a musical mm -hmm. event. A lot of people think about childbirth in that fashion or watching somebody die. So I think there are both these ordinary forms of awe that I call everyday awe, Right. Yeah. You could almost stop right now, look outside, reflect on the light of the sun or whatever it is and feel awe. Mm -hmm. And then there are these two or three times in a lifetime experiences that change our lives, which is fascinating. Yeah. And so what's yours? What's the first, what's the big memory of awe that you kind of conjure when you're thinking about that huge life-changing moment? Yeah, you know, early on, you know, I had these experiences camping uh, when I was six or seven and forever after I've found meaning in camping. I just freaked out with awe when I was a young kid outside mm. of the LA County Museum when I saw at the La Brea Tar Pits, there's this reenactment of a saber-toothed tiger and a woolly mammoth, you know, in the tar. And, and as a kid, I was like, there were beings like those things, you know? <laughs> and, and I got fascinated with dinosaurs and evolution and science. You know, just like you, like I remember seeing Nelson Mandela freed from captivity and mm. he was making this tour in the 80s and being there with 50,000 people and thinking about, you know, the end of apartheid, I just started crying, you know. So it's interesting to think about the, the big sources and then the everyday forms of awe. Yeah, the, the shifts. So what are the, <laughs> what are the bodily signs that we're experiencing or like what is happening and how do we sense it? Yeah, what a terrific question. You know, William James, you know, great philosopher in America, really wrote about the bodily responses of awe. Mm. I love Walt Whitman writing about, you know, the soul being in the body. And that begs the question of, does this transcend emotion of awe have bodily sensations associated with it? Right. And there's been a lot of progress on that very question. And it's interesting when people hear I study awe, you know, some of them are like, God, I, I don't quite know if I've had an experience of awe, but let me tell you about <laughs> one. You know, I was 
I was walking along and then I saw Brad Pitt and I got to give him a hug, you know, <laughs> or whatever it is. That's different and, or. <laughs> yeah, that, okay. Well, maybe. Let me think of another example. You know, uh, you know, I saw this comment, sort of, sort of annihilate, you know, so, and then they'll describe these bodily sensations of like, you tear up, which is a regular response of awe. Mm. You uh, vocalize, that's a bodily response. Whoa, right? You get this warm feeling in your chest. That is the vagus nerve that's activated by awe, which is this big bundle of nerves scientists are increasingly interested in that sort of slows your heart rate, deepens your breathing, calms Mm -hmm. your body. And then let's not forget the goosebumps. The chills are these little tingly sensations up your back and your neck and your arms that people feel with awe that are a very ancient mammalian physiological reaction where your muscles contract, fluffing up your fur if you have fur. (laughs) And, (laughs) And... You know, as I write about in this book, those aren't just random responses. Those are all part of this broader physiological response where you become more open to the world, more curious, and more interested in connecting with other people, which is right at the essence of all. And do we understand the evolutionary function of that? Or do we understand it as an evolutionary function? Or, or is that still something we're not very clear on? Yeah, that's that's very recent scholarship. And, and thank you for asking, because I, like Darwin and everybody who's followed, really feel that you know, these defining characteristics of humans have an evolutionary story to them. And I think that there are really two important functions of awe. And one is that it it really integrates us into social collectives or groups, right? And there is widespread consensus now in evolutionary scholarship that our sociality, our, our ability to form groups and relationships is one of our signature adaptations or strengths. And awe fast tracks you. It just makes you feel like you're part of a tribe or a group, right? right? And it makes you share and cooperate, even changes your sense of self where you feel like, like you described going to the anti-war mm-hmm. protests, like I'm part of a collective. Um, yeah. And then the second function is a little bit more subtle, which is, you know, and I write about this at the end of the book, which is odd. It allows you to look at the world in a certain way in terms of what are the systems out there that you might be part of, right? A social system or a cultural system or ecosystem. And that's really mm-hmm. important, right? It helps individuals kind of integrate into a social group around you or even an ecosystem, right? Where I'm learning right. how to be part of all the species that are part of an ecosystem. So awe activates this systems thinking, which is very important evolutionarily. And talk to me a bit about the default mode network work because I learned about that from Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. And it's so interesting to hear the connections between, you know, the the science of psychedelics and the science of awe. There seems to be a lot in common there. Yeah. And we can talk about that. I mean, you know, it's it's funny because, you know, the, the psychedelic literature and Michael Pollan is a dear friend and what a brilliant book, you know, these spirit medicines, as indigenous peoples call them, or psychedelics, you know, like, why do they make us less fearful about life and dying and existence. And now a lot of labs are starting to say that awe and transcendence, these feelings are kind of the the active ingredient of them. We can talk about that. Um, Mm. But the default mode network is an incredible discovery. And in particular, in informing us about awe, which is, you know, when people feel awe, and it was fun to like go deep into the writing about this, uniformly people write about disappearing and dissolving and Mm. the ego dying. You know, Julian of Norwich, the great English theologian, uh, had these, you know, spiritual experiences. And she kept saying, I am nothing. I am nothing. 
And that we find in our laboratory research that you just get small. You feel like you're you're not as consequential as you ordinarily think you are. Yeah. And lo and behold, that sense of self is registered in activation in this default mode network in the brain, which is mm-hmm. big chunks of your frontal cortex and the side. And awe through nature videos, recollections of past experiences, psychedelics, deactivates the default mode network. And I mm. think that is liberating. You know, it just frees you from the ego. It makes you open to the world, you know, it makes you less self-critical and in a sense, free. It's so interesting how it seems to be pleasurable for us to let go of this this thing called the self you know this yeah. this domineering character that that tells us what we are all the time yeah and there's I, i'm interested in the link between awe and humility they they seem to be interdependent right uh you know thanks for asking you know humility having the right sense of proportion of your place in the world right you're not the mm. center of the world you're a small part of the world and also the second component of humility so important today is to be open and appreciative of other people other forces in life the qualities the virtues of other people and other forces right that life has fate as mm. part of or environmental forces and indeed all increases an individual sense of humility, the the sense of the right proportions of their place in life, the openness to other people's strengths and not anxiety about them or competitiveness about them. Mm. And, you know, Catherine, I don't know, when I started to see these findings about awe, deactivating Mm. the default mode network, making us feel small and humble, you look today at the rise of the self and individualism and self-expression and arrogance, you know, and all of the linkages between self-focus and anxiety and depression. And here's an emotion, awe, that, Mm. you know, that just shuts down those tendencies and opens you up to the wonders of the world. Yeah, I agree so much. And I, I think often about how when I was younger, that experience of humility and feeling yeah. small used to be really painful for me and unsettling, mm. you know, yeah. like I, I remember the first time someone told me that the universe was infinite and I hated <laughs> it. You know, I really, I thought that was a vile thought, frankly, and it, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't get a handle on it. It was so horrible. Yeah. And now I feel really comforted by thoughts like that, you know, by my tininess and by my insignificance. And that makes me less responsible for everything, which is deeply comforting to me. And it helps me to just know my place in a, you know, I know that's like a traditional, you know, phrase to tell people to pipe down, but in a deeply wonderful way to know my place in the world and know my place amongst other people. Yeah. You know, I I think what you've just outlined, Catherine, is one of the great challenges of contemporary living and and developing in life, which is to realize you're not the center of the universe, Mm. um, that there are these vast forces that you're part of, be it a family history or a culture you're part of or the environment, right? What we're doing to the environment. And awe shifts our understanding from being anxious about being a small part of a vast thing to feeling empowered by that and enthusiastic. Mm. Uh, So I agree. I think that, you know, we need these reminders that you find in the great philosophical traditions like Hinduism, right? That the sense that my soul is part of a large soul, a universal soul is very similar to this. And awe makes us see that more clearly, that these vast forces are just part of existence and interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'm often troubled though that uh, 
how do you put this? Like increasingly we're performing or yeah, for yeah. outside audiences. Yeah. Rather than authentically experiencing it. And then that becomes part of that whole process of ramping up our egos again. You know, it's like, yeah. here's a photo of me in nature feeling yeah. awe. Yeah. But, oh, look, I took the time to arrange a photo shoot around it. And to, you know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and by the way, this post is sponsored by these walking boots, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's like we seem wow. to understand that awe is important. But I wonder if we avoid feeling it a little. I wonder if those feelings, if we let them in, feel too big for us sometimes and more than than we can handle. We don't mm. want that transformation that, that might come. I think there's definitely a, what, what a deep set of questions, you know, I think. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, you know, and, and we don't know. I mean, we, you know, we, the idea that awe is so transformative, you know, I suspect that indeed some people shy away from the experience just to, you know, because it'll destabilize their, mm. their view of the world and, and, and really impel them to consider new possibilities. And that's anxiety producing. So I'm, I'm sure there are yeah. people who avoid awe. Your comment the second comment about, you know, kind of the Instagram awe or mm. the, I think it's a, a deep one that, and you know, the, the idea that there are these cultural means by which certain individuals commodify awe, they exploit yeah. it, they monetize it. They, you know, here I am doing this wild surfing trip in <laughs> Australia, look at me and my, you know, and I agree. And, and that's fascinating to think about how that, that takes away from the power of awe. But I'll note, you know, it's interesting in writing this book, this is an old tendency in the, you know, Middle Ages and Renaissance era. There were Europeans who had these things called marvel rooms and curiosity cabinets where they would collect all these awe-inspiring things, usually taken from other cultures, and show them off to their friends, right? And say, I've got the most awe-inspiring Marvel room. Look at the sea tortoise from Argentina or whatever. And that was another attempt at commodifying awe, which humans yeah, routinely do. And so it tells us, like, we've got to find our own awe and, and give it away to people. Yeah, that's so interesting. The idea that we can't stop trying to sell it <laughs> rather yeah. than experience it. That's Humans sell we everything. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we do. Yeah. We'll return to the episode in just a moment. But How We Live Now is part of a community and I wanted to recommend another podcast that I think you'll love. Hi, I'm Penny Windsor, author and book coach and host of Not Too Busy to Write, the podcast about writing amongst life's many other demands. Join me as I chat with fellow authors of all kinds about their work and most importantly, how they get the work done. Writing can be a lonely pursuit, especially when you're juggling other work, parenting, caring, a disability. So join us each Wednesday to hear how other writers from backgrounds of all kinds make it work. That's so interesting, the idea that we can't stop trying to sell it <laughs> rather yeah. than experience it. That's Humans sell everything. We so, yeah. yeah, we do. Yeah. I wonder if if we always are very good at identifying it when it happens as well. Yeah. Like, yeah. and do we need, do we need to know it's happening for it to be useful to us? I mean, that's a, it's a deep question because how do you know you're having an emotional experience? And yeah. they're, they're complicated, right? They involve very ancient 
brain, what we call brainstem processes where you're interpreting the environment almost unconsciously. And then it filters up into the brain, into the prefrontal cortex where you label the experience. Mm. So there's potential slippage in that process where you may be having a, a feeling of awe and not name it, not use your cultural understanding and language to make sense of it. And I think there are many occasions in which people are often unaware of their awe experiences. But for the most part, in our research, we find that there is a coherence that when we name it, we're usually aware of the bodily changes that follow something in the environment. But there are going to be counterexamples to that. Is it important to know you're feeling awe? <laughs> I do. I, I That's think That's a kind of so. tricksy question. I'm sorry. Well, <laughs> you know, that can be situated in this broader literature where people who have richer vocabularies of emotional experience, mm. who have a greater awareness, say activated in the prefrontal cortex when they're feeling things, tend to have more generative and useful experiences of emotion, right? They, right. It's like, oh, I'm really angry right now. Why is that? What can I do? Or I'm feeling awe about this painting. What does it tell me about life? So I do think awareness is a prerequisite to making the most of all. But we don't know scientifically. Yeah. It's too deep a question, Catherine. Sorry, I'm sorry. That's that's the areas for further research. Yes. <laughs> and I, I'm also, I can't help but think about the moments when or fails us as well. You know, those yeah. those times yeah. when we, we go somewhere that we yeah. think is going to be awe-inspiring, but we're left cold by it. Or yeah. the times when maybe a creative artist produces something that's supposed to evoke or yeah. but it actually doesn't do yep. that. Do we understand anything about the failure of awe and, and can we reach too hard for it maybe? Yeah, you know, I think that, you know, there is this concern when you study these emotions that have such beneficial effects to be thinking about, you know, well, what are the failures of this emotion? All, any human characteristic, right? Our ability to do math or to, mm -hmm. you know, to extend altruism to other people can lead us astray. And that's just the complexity of human existence. And awe fails us in, in certain ways. You know, one is it can lead us to see patterns that don't exist. Uh, and to attach ourselves to charismatic figures who can really be bad for the world. And you think about cults and Hitler yeah. and QAnon, right? And those are failures of awe and exploitations of awe. You know, I think that we don't know this, but in the, the happiness literature, there's this kind of emerging generalization that the more we seek out stuff that makes us happy, the less it will make us happy, you know? Right. And awe, you can sort of sense that that might be true of awe, that, oh, I, I'm always looking for awe, and then it never quite lives up to that expectation. I will mm -hmm. say, and, and this was really encouraging in our research, that we did a study where elderly people went on an awe walk once a week for eight weeks, and they sought out awe, right, in their walk. Right. What was sort of wonderful and mysterious that they could go find on their weekly walk and they actually felt more awe over the mm. eight-week period. So I think, yes, there are failures of awe, but I think if you approach it with some, some intentionality and wisdom, uh, it'll bring you many benefits as long as you get, yeah. don't get too obsessed about it. I love the way that you say that awe is cumulative, you know, that, yeah. that actually it builds up over a lifetime, which that feels counterintuitive. You know, it feels like it should be this rare thing that doesn't work as well the second time round, but it's like a muscle that we we can develop to receive it, I guess. It is. And, and you know, this in some sense was the most provocative finding in our 
work is, you know, as I referred to earlier, of like everyday awe. We studied people in several different countries, you know, China, Japan, Spain, US, Mm. UK. We had them every night tell us like, you know, hey, did you feel an experience of awe today? And the averages were two to three times a week they're feeling it. And then when you read the stories and their accounts of those experiences, it is this sense of like, it's around us, you know, it is looking at the sunset or, you know, walking by a classroom and you hear kids singing and it just kind of strikes you, the capacity for music. Or like you said, you know, just a sense of people bonding together to create community or social justice. So it's around us. And I've just been struck by that power. We're we're just about to publish a study. Well, it's, it's been just published that, you know, we had healthcare providers who were in the heat of COVID-19 and the pandemic. And, you know, these are nurses and doctors dealing with chaos and death. Mm -mm. And in the, the program they did, they just, once a day, they just thought about Just think for a moment about what's awe-inspiring around you. And they felt stronger and less depression over the course of the period. So I think the book urges us to think like, what's awesome around you? So, Mm. And does it make us do good more as well? Do we behave better if we're expert? Maybe given that you've given the example of of Hitler-inducing awe as well, maybe, maybe it doesn't, but yeah. Well, it does in the local sense, you know, in in the sense that, you know, we've published a few papers, Paul Piff and others showing these little moments of awe. You know, one of the things, it's interesting when people have a big experience of awe, like your experience at the anti-war mm. protest, first of all, you feel like, God, I'm part of this collective. I'm, I'm part of something larger. And very often people say, I want to do some good in the world. William James called those the saintly tendencies of mystical awe. And then we've done these really nice laboratory studies showing little moments of awe. You share more with a stranger. You cooperate more. You feel more compassion for someone, etc. But then again, you know, you always have to, that's the local benefits of awe. But then you have to engage in this broader consideration of, is that always good? You know, with with the Nazis sacrificing on behalf of Hitler, obviously that was problematic. So so great. Yeah. Yeah. We need to always be skeptical and uh, yeah. and and think in the broader ways about what what the emotion does for us well like so many things you know that no one thing is the the magic bullet for for making us live a good life you know yeah. it's, it is about digging into the complexity and and understanding that we need all sorts of inputs and ways of thinking and, and we'll always need to be critical about about everything ultimately like we we can't ever let go of that idea that we that we can just coast along and expect the world to to bring us to good. It just doesn't really work like that. I agree. I agree. You know, John Haidt had a, you know, his wonderful thinking about political and political mm. morality is we have these deep feelings that tell us things. Like when you feel awe, ancient feeling, it's like, wow, there's this collective intention that you refer to yeah. that I'm part of. And and then we need rational discourse. We need social discourse to say, is that intention good, right? I might feel awestruck by the latest electric car, and, and forget to do the analysis of like, well, what kind of energy was needed to create that car? And so we, we need rational discourse too. Yeah. And one of the things that always fascinates me about awe anyway is that there is a kind of component of darkness embedded within it. You know, yeah. awe is something that could potentially, or, or we feel it at something that could potentially overcome us, that could... Yeah engulf us that's that's so big that we're we're afraid of it you know that that sort of ancient experience of awe is about the idea of looking into the face of god and 
understanding how they could crush you with, you know, with their thumbnail, I guess. Yeah, you know, there's so many, you know, awe is a positive feeling. It uh, It's really closest in our, you know, pretty sophisticated research with Alan Cowan on it's closest to interest and absorption and beauty and love and adoration. Mm. But little shifts in the meaning of awe can really move you into the realms of horror and terror, right? And anxiety and alienation. You know, if you suddenly have a sense of you're really anxious about giving up agency, you know, and being part of something large that's largely out of your control, it can Mm -hmm. turn into a terrifying experience, right? Psychedelics has that where you're awestruck by the visuals and the the conceptual content of, of psychedelic experience but then suddenly you're like oh my god i'm i'm disappearing i'm, I'm dissolving <laughs> right yeah. and and you become terrified so it is a complicated emotion and thank goodness yeah i like complicated things i Good. i, <laughs> I, I dislike <laughs> the the emphasis on happiness because i i think it's yeah. so flat you know the idea that yeah. we're supposed to be happy all the time just yeah doesn't make any sense to me at all. It feels like skimming over human experience. Whereas hmm. when I think about awe, I feel something much more crunchy down there and I like it. <laughs> I'm with you. So just to finish, because it, it's been so wonderful to talk to you, but you write a little in the book about how awe has been useful in your own life, dealing yeah. with the death of your brother. Would, would you mind speaking a little bit about that? Because I found that so moving. Thank you, Catherine. Yeah. It brings tears to think about it now, you know. Um, sure. yeah. I uh, I had this wild childhood, um, you know, raised in the late 60s in a wild part of Los Angeles and then grew up in the wilds of the mm-hmm. mountains. And, and my companion in awe was my brother, Rolf. You know, he, he was one year younger and we just did everything together and had this, you know, remarkable childhood. And then, and that continued through our lives. And then he uh, got colon cancer. Mm-hmm. and had a horrifying two years with that disease and then passed away. And it was so, there were just two deep insights that I write about in the book, which is the yeah. first was, you know, when I watched him on his last night alive physically, I was sad and I was anxious and, but I was awestruck too, you know, just to, mm-hmm. as a lot of people are when just thinking about the end of life and the mystery of life and the mystery of death. And I was comforted by our science, which finds around the world, the end of life is a source of awe. You know, you just, yeah. you're catapulted into this very, you know, reflective state. And then what happened to me um, is, is when you really lose somebody young, who, who's so vital to all of life mm. for you, you, man, you head into struggle. And I was really lost. And it was interesting, Catherine, you know, and it's too, you know, you rightly say like, this is a complicated emotion and complicated to feel it when you watch your brother die. But then also it was hovering in, in my experiences of grief where Mm. I, I felt him around me. I heard his voice. I, I saw him a couple of times. People during grief often feel like they see the person who's passed away. I felt his hand on my back. And so in this really complicated state, I went in search of awe. You know, I was just like, you know, I'm, I study this emotion. I know it's good for you. I'm not feeling it right now. And so I, you know, just changed my orientation to music and getting outdoors and thinking about people who really inspire me, all the sources of awe. Mm. And it, it really transformed the grief. It, it gave me things I wouldn't have I've learned had I not sought out awe during grief. And writing the book has just been 
so gratifying to hear almost daily from people who are like, you know, I lost my sister. Yeah. Uh, I went in search of awe and, and found new meaning through that mm. experience. So it was, it was profound. Well, I, I think again, like what you what you're expressing is the complexity of awe and, and that, you know, we don't get to talk about death very much. And we, we're not often invited to talk about our complex response to that very complex thing that, yeah. that, and that is so full of mystery and so unknown and so full of mixed emotions. And yeah, your, your account of, of Rolf dying reminded me of being with my father-in-law when he was dying and feeling mm-hmm. that again, that, that kind of shift in, in all of life happening yeah, yeah. that, that was so that immediately felt like something very different to mm. to the everyday and to, to what I knew and not entirely unpleasant. Not at all. <laughs> Surprisingly. Not at all. Yeah. And I love that complexity about awe that it's like, I'm in deep pain, but at the same time, I'm tearing up at the, you know, the wonders of this father-in-law's life or what he means to yeah. all yeah. of us here. So yeah. And, and, you know, this is why we do research in some sense, Catherine, is we, mm-hmm. we kind of portray a complicated feeling state emotion like awe. We say, here's what it can do. And, and maybe it'll uh, point to some awareness for people to, to yeah. find deeper meaning in grief or where, where their lives are going. Well, it's irresistible to say that it points us back to that interconnection that all relies on in the first place, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. it's it's taking us into the vastness of humanity and, and the way that, that we're linked together in these experiences across all of human life as long as it's been going on. And that's a, that's a, a pretty much definition of an awe-inspiring encounter, really. <laughs> it is. And, 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 but you know, just raising it up, like what we share as fellow human beings. I mean, we lose sight of that in mm. when we look at our smartphone and, you know, all the nonsense of Donald Trump or whatever, and, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. but and all reminds It's very us, hard to lose sight of the, the wonder of humanity. When you- <laughs> <laughs> mm. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, Daka, thank you so much. It's been amazing mm. to talk to you. I'm so glad I had the opportunity. And uh, it's been lovely to roam around in the, mm. the sense of what awe is. So, so thank you so much. Thank you, Catherine. What a wonderful conversation. You know, it's funny... This year, it feels like summer has been shifted forward a little. As I'm speaking to you, it's the end of July. And already, the weather seems to have turned. There are blackberries out in the hedgerows which shocks me. They're early. They're definitely early. And I've been watching on the news as temperatures are soaring across the world. So many places are literally on fire. Records are being broken. I want to end 
this season with a moment of engaging with that change we're enduring at the moment and how that feels to us and kind of restatement of the seriousness of our work here of the urgency of paying attention and feeling connection and the sense that what we're talking about here seems very soft we're talking about awe we're talking about having a sense of magic talked to Amy Jeffs about mythology I talked to Marjolyn Van Heemstra about space and our practice of stargazing which has enchanted us across millennia and I suppose what I want to say at this moment and at this point in time is that now is not the moment to walk away from that sense of magic which I think is in many ways one of the defining human emotions and when we let it go when we deliberately walk away from it we walk away from a system of signposts that tell us to tune in to engage to pay attention and to take care A couple of weeks ago, I quoted the artist Keith Haring saying, money is the opposite of magic. And I think that's a wonderful way of understanding the choice we have to make here between a life governed by materialism, by profit, by a culture of overwork, by the valuing of career above family, and by the political systems that encourage us to make that choice and force us to in many ways, by making it so hard to live a good life or any kind of life without access to increasingly large quantities of money. And magic seems so silly when we're talking about all of these very serious things. But I'd like to suggest to you now as we close this series 
that it's actually the biological marker of feeling connected. And it's our body's way of telling us when we're approaching something close to the truth of this life, this existence, which is the wonder of it all, the wonderful mystery of being human. And it's enchantment that keeps tempting us back in to dance with it again, no matter how hard it gets. Thanks for listening. Thanks to everybody who helped make this series. And I'll see you again very soon. And that's all for this episode. Thanks for being here to explore how we live now. This podcast is presented by Catherine May, produced by Megan Hutchins and Buddy Peace, with social media by Sarah Horner and communications by Becca Pierce. Buddy Peace also composed the wonderful incidental music. For updates, show notes, transcriptions and plenty of stories, subscribe to my newsletter at katherinemay.substack.com where you can also upgrade to support the show and join my vibrant community of readers, writers and wanderers. And finally, if you enjoyed my podcast, please consider buying my new book, Enchantment. There's a link in the show notes. See you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.